Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And a good Sunday morning to you on another hot weekend here in the Twin Cities. If you have any kind of a general health question, it's another open line show today. And uh, you can call in uh, your question for Dr. Hilden or send a text, 651-989-9226. That number will get you in uh, either the phone or the text line. So 651-989-9226. Good morning to you, Dr. Hilden. I trust you had a good week, but uh, but uh, certainly a warm one for all of us. Good morning, Danny, uh, and to, to everybody listening. Yes, it's been a good week. Uh, I hope... Uh, Hope everybody had a good 4th of July. Did you have a good 4th, Danny? It's a little bit different this year, isn't it? <laughs> it really was, yeah. As uh, Like a lot of folks, well, staying close to home, I think, and we want to try to keep it safe. And uh, not too many fireworks, so we're, we're grateful for that as far as the noise Exa- level. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you I, know, it's, uh, um, I don't usually watch fireworks on TV, but for some reason I had turned on what was going on in Washington, D.C., and... Wow, that was impressive, what they did on the National Mall and then in New York. It's a little different when you're not, uh, when you're not watching them live, uh, but at least there's no mosquitoes when you're you – know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's that, watching fireworks from inside. Yeah, it was a different fourth, but any, anyway, I hope people did have at least a, some time to find a safe way to uh, celebrate um, the holiday or perhaps be with friends uh, and family over the weekend. It has been um, – uh, a busy week in, in the COVID world, and I know that's not the only thing we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, we'll talk about whatever people uh, wish to talk about. Uh, if you if you want to call in, we'll see who got a good night's sleep last night by who calls and texts in this morning. Yeah, 651-989-9226. Uh, like you said, this is an open line show, and a lot of folks maybe did not get their questions answered last week. Uh, so we'll give it another shot today, but certainly we'll talk about uh, the COVID-19 issues. But uh, like Dr. Hilden said, uh, any other general health question, please call in or send a text. And uh, why don't you give us an update, please, of what, what's happening with the COVID-19 I'll, issue? I'll do that, Danny. So Minnesota, like, um, well, like about the 40 other states, give or take, is seeing a little, little up, uptick in COVID cases on the last week or two. Our uptick in cases is modest, um, but it is going up. And so the reasons for that are probably many. Same with Wisconsin and the states uh, around us. Other states in the country are not seeing a modest uptick. They're seeing an incredibly dramatic uptick in cases the last few weeks. So this thing is is a weird virus. It really is because it, it seems to be that it, it has like a hot spot of distribution. 
when we first heard about this virus back four or five months ago, or whatever that was in January or so, we weren't sure. Was it going to be like the flu, the seasonal flu, where pretty much everybody sees a lot of cases in the winter months and then nobody sees any cases in the summer? Well, that didn't pan out because this, this virus has plenty of cases even in the heat of summer. So that that was not didn't pan out. Then we were wondering, would it just kind of go across the whole country like a big tsunami wave? And it didn't really do that either. What it has it has, seems to be doing is coming in hot spots in specific outbreaks. And it's really almost hard to figure out where it's going to be next. Although we are learning more with each passing day what seems to be the riskiest thing. And what seems to be lower risk is outdoor activities. And so if people can be outside, um, especially outside at a distance or outside mask with a mask on, that is a lower risk situation. So I think that's got to be our hope for how we're going to get through this thing is that you can do things outside as long as you're a, a distance away from other people or you're wearing a mask, that's relatively safe. What does not appear to be at all safe, the risky situations, are indoor situations where you are in close proximity to people for prolonged periods of time, especially if you're not wearing a mask. And so those are clearly turning out to be that's that's where the risky things happen. And so we're not sure why some outbreaks happen in some cities and not others, but that seems to be the biggest risk factor is this close indoor contact. Um, the thing that is also, as, as many people know, is, is sort of it's become almost a political issue. And everybody I know in medicine and everybody I know in public health, the two areas where I, I trained, um, everybody's really um, quite distressed by that. This shouldn't be a political issue. It's simply science. And science learns new things. And when it learns, new, when we learn new things, we adjust recommendations. That's simply the nature of science. In fact, I would, I would suggest that is the nature of an intelligent community. An intelligent country takes new information, learns from it, and um, adjusts what we do. And so the fact that it's become a little bit political is um, too bad. And, and I see that on on the news and the like, and wearing a mask isn't a political statement. It's simply a, a, the right thing to do. So I would encourage everybody to be, you know, get out over your Fourth of July weekend, get out with your family and friends, just do so safely at a distance, and do wear a mask. And because that seems to be the best way that we can lower the these surges of cases. And that's sort of the update. In Minnesota, we're doing okay right now. Our death rate is not going up. In fact, it continues to drop. But the case rate is climbing, and it seems to be climbing most in young people. People in their 20s and 30s are the biggest group of people getting this virus. And although they're not getting ill, seriously ill, they are probably, almost certainly, passing it to others who are getting ill. So, we're all in this together, I guess, is the summary for that whole thing, is that wear your mask, be safe, and try not to pass this thing on. And if you do have a general health question, could be about COVID, it could be about anything uh, for uh, Dr. David Hilden, 651-989-9226. That's the phone call number. It's also the text number, 651-989-9226. Tell you what, we're due for a quick break here, and when we pick uh, pick back up, we'll uh, grab a couple of text messages and 
answer some phone calls as well. It's an open line show here on Healthy Matters on News Talk 830 WCCO. And a good Sunday morning to you in the Twin Cities. Uh, we expect highs uh, and a heat advisory will be in effect until uh, 8 tonight. 93 will be the high in the Twin Cities today. So we'll talk about that, too, during the show today. Uh, Dr. Hilden is addressing your questions either by phone or by text on an open line show, 651-989-9226. And there is a a line open if you want to call it in or certainly send a text like some folks are already doing. And I know, Dr. Hilden, as an internal medicine physician, you treat adults, basically. But a text came in a bit ago about their 10-year-old grandson was recently diagnosed with juvenile arthritis. And uh, they just wanted you to comment about that. I'm I'm not sure how how much you've heard. I'm sure you've heard a lot about it. But are we seeing a lot of that, have you heard? Yeah. um, As you mentioned, I mostly do adults. But there are certain um, uh, disease processes that hit people who are younger as well. And, and I should always preface any comments I make about, about that with, um, with the caveat that I am not a pediatrician and I'm not an expert in childhood diseases. So uh, take what I say with a, a grain of salt for that. But there are, um, uh, your, the, the human body is born with some pre-disposal pre, uh, to certain um, mostly autoimmune type things or genetic things, and meaning either you have a gene that is coding for some disease process or you have an autoimmune disorder. In other words, your own immune system is sort of taken over and getting a little over-exuberant and starting to attack your own body. Some of them are like diabetes. Some kids can get diabetes. There are some cancers that kids can get. And in addition, there are some musculoskeletal conditions such as arthritis. Uh, Many of these are um, treatable much better today than they were in the past. One of the areas of scientific advancement that always impresses me has been in rheumatology, which is the the study and the treatment of bone and joint uh, disorders, of which arthritis is one of them. There are medications now that um, are what we call biologic. In other words, they're not just a drug that kills something, um, uh, which is what many of our drugs have done in the past. Um, They they work in a biologic mechanism to allow your own body to um, fight the disease. So um, they're just amazing. These are drugs that are are so advanced and um, so effective that some of the courses of these um, childhood illnesses have really been changed. So although I can't say specifically about juvenile arthritis, I can say that the treatments have advanced tremendously and the parents of children who are experiencing joint problems should see a a rheumatologist or other specialist in childhood arthritis. The, the plural of arthritis is arthritides, um, who have uh, who have arthritis problems, and uh, make sure you see a specialist in childhood versions of those. Um, uh, uh, your rheumatologist can really help you out with those things. But there are treatments, so there's a lot of really good stuff on the horizon for some of those childhood illnesses. All right, six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. Our phone number and text number. Speaking of the phones, let's go to the phones. I think Mary is calling from Clear Lake this morning with a question. Mary, the doctor's listening. Yeah, I just had a question. Seeing that the riots were four or five weeks ago, uh, people shoulder to shoulder, some masked, some not. Why has there not been a spike in Minneapolis? 
Mary, that is a great question, and it is the one that we were wondering as well. And um, in fact, as all of those demonstrations were going on um, in late May and early June, many of us said, okay, let's wait two or three weeks and let's see what happens. This could be bad. Um, It turned out it wasn't. And in fact, we don't have really hardly any evidence that there was an effect, at least a major effect, on the coronavirus caseload um, where there where there were those um, demonstrations and rioting. The reasons are are still not quite understood, but it's a little bit gets back to what I was saying earlier. Um, and these are what is thought to be the case on those. Number one, they were almost exclusively outdoors which has led to a lot of of knowledge coming to us about the effect of indoor versus outdoor. Uh, You didn't see a lot of um, rioting and and close-to-close demonstrations and protests indoors, almost always outdoors. Secondly, people were generally moving. People were not just sitting in one place, like listening to something. They were generally walking around, moving. Um, And so that was probably helpful as well. Um, we have now learned that it is close contact with a person that is not that for a long period of time, 5, 10, 15 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes in close contact with a person. That is not the case in demonstrations. You're not, you're generally moving. Third, it, it did seem apparent that the, a, a great number of people were wearing masks. Certainly not all. Certainly there were loads of people who were not. But when you, it is, when at least many of the people, even even if it's half the people or a, or a majority of people are wearing masks, that probably is enough to reduce the transmission a great deal as well. And that was the case in the demonstrations is that at least a great number of them, maybe even the majority uh, in many cases, were wearing masks. So that is what we think about that right now. Um, again, we are learning. We are learning. Um, so outdoors, moving around, mostly wearing masks. Those are probably the reasons that the demonstration did not lead to many cases. It's a, but it's a, it's a bit of the, the scientific knowledge field that we're just still learning about. Um, so that, Mary, is uh, what I would say is a fantastic question. It's one that we've been asking ourselves and one we've been trying to understand. And it seems to make sense um, for the reasons I just said. Okay. Uh, texter wants to know, what is reflux leakage, they say, in leg veins, and how is it treated? Yeah, it's, uh, reflux leakage in leg veins. It's not a term I would use so much, but um, what I, I believe what they're saying here is that you're, you're, when your legs swell up due to bad veins, for lack of a better word, uh, your veins are an interesting part of your body. They are the blood vessels whose job is to carry the blood from the distant parts of your body back to your heart. This is oxygen-poor blood. The oxygenated blood is brought to your body by the arteries where it feeds your tissues and, it, and your tissues extract the oxygen. And then the, the blood goes back to your heart to pick up more oxygen. The veins are a passive um, a more passive blood vessel. Arteries are squeezing and pumping in our muscular veins are kind of wussy little blood vessels. They have little valves in them, but the, the blood moves back to your heart sort of like a lazy river. The arteries are a rushing rapids, but back to your heart, it's sort of a lazy river. It just moves slowly. 
Well, as we age, they don't function as well. They get more brittle. They get more, you know, more permeable. The valves, the little little flaps inside the veins that help move the blood um, from your feet to your heart don't work quite as well. So some of the fluid leaks out of your veins, and it leaks into the tissues of your legs. So as many an older adult knows, if you're sitting or standing for a long period of time, your legs swell up. It's because the blood isn't escaping your veins, but the watery part of your blood is. So you get fluid in your legs. And, and many people know that if they raise their legs or when, when they get up in the morning, their leg swelling has gone away because gravity helped them out. But during the day, gravity is not on your side. And so the blood just pools in your legs. It le- the water leaks out into your tissues. So that's sort of, I think, what this texture is talking about. There are compression stockings that can help. There are vein surgeries and other treatments that can help. But I do have to say they are not your first choice. You wouldn't immediately go to that. There are also medications that can help reduce the fluid lo- load. But mostly... Um, Poor veins and leaky fluid is best treated by your lifestyle. Raise your legs. Wear compression stockings. Don't stay on your feet for a long period of time. Those are the, the best kind of interventions. Uh, before we take a break, a texter wants to know, uh, the, their doctor, his or her doctor, says that they are dehydrated. What is the amount of water one should drink during the day is the question. You know, my... 25-year-old daughter who is quarantining with us here from California carries around a one-gallon jug of water with her name plastered around it. She's drinking it all day. And I said, what's that for? And she goes, I'm staying hydrated, Dad. Well, what we don't really know is um, uh, how much – there's no – quantifiable amount. I always tell people, drink when you're thirsty. That's the minimum. Drink when you're thirsty. But it is probably true that staying well hydrated through the day is a good idea of non-alcoholic, non-caffeinated beverages and non-sugary pop beverages. So drink when you're thirsty. Um, We used to say eight glasses of eight ounces of water a day. That, That was based on no actual science. So, um, uh, one good measure is, especially during this hot weather, is uh, when you urinate, the, your urine should be a light yellow in color. If it's dark yellow, you're probably a bit dehydrated and might want to drink more water. It should be a light, very light yellow in color. That's sort of what you're shooting for. So drink enough water to make your urine light yellow, and I, I think that that would be a pretty good rule of thumb. We have another half hour of the show to go. It's an open line show today. If you want to ask Dr. Hilden your question, you can call it in or text it in. Same number, 651 989 9226. Right now in the Twin Cities, 78 degrees. We'll have a look at that forecast coming up here on News Talk 830 WCCO. And welcome back to Healthy Matters this Sunday morning. Your uh, text messages and your phone calls for Dr. David Hilden. It's an open line show. We're not talking about any particular topic today. So if you have a general health question for the doctor, now's your chance. Call us or send a text. And uh, I tell you what, Gary in St. Paul has been hanging on the phone, uh, Dr. Hilden. Let's uh, let's see what Gary has to say. Gary, thanks for waiting. What's your question, please? Uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, we've heard about the saliva test for COVID, uh, and I, I don't know if it happened in mail or whatever, and it was supposed to be more accurate and uh, obviously easier to administer. And I was wondering where where we are with that test. Yeah, Gary, thanks for your call. Um, the one problem with the the current COVID test is that it's a it's a 
so I'm, I'm exaggerating, but it's a long Q-tip kind of a thing that we stick in your nose into the back of your throat, and it's very uncomfortable to get that. Well, it's pretty uncomfortable to get the test done. The good thing about the test that we have is that it's highly accurate. What would be better, or maybe better, you know, at least an improvement, is if we had a test that was a little easier to, admin, to administer and was a little faster. And that's what some of these newer tests are looking at, is um, what, wouldn't it be great if we could just swab your, your mouth instead of sticking this thing into your nose? And it wouldn't it be great if we could have it back in 20 minutes and not many hours? like we currently have. So that's what we're after. The problem with some of these newer tests um, from the mouth are they're not quite as accurate. That could change rapidly um, as, the, as the technology advances. Think of it like this. When you go to, for, for a long time, when you go for, to your doctor for a sore throat, they do a swab of the back of your throat, and usually they tell you to wait in the room or the waiting room, and 20 minutes later they tell you if you have strep or not. That's that's what we're kind of after. But what do they also tell you? If your test is negative when you get that strep test, they often tell you that's not 100% reliable. We'll let you know in a day or two if, if it becomes positive, if we do a culture on your throat. It's a similar thing. The current rapid tests have a negative, um, a falsely negative. In other words, they tell you you don't have it when you really did. Um, and, and that has been as high as 20 or 30%, which is not that great. And, uh, and so um, the, that has to improve a little bit, but it is a pretty good test for some situations. Maybe employers want to use it, or, or maybe it could be used to to test larger groups of people so that we can get to a point when we can do more events in our community. It could have a role in that uh, um, to just reassure us that at least most people are negative for the test. So that's kind of where it sits. The, the current state of testing is that we have a molecular test. That's the main gold standard. That's the one in your nose to tell you if you're currently infected. There are these rapid tests, which is not a molecular test, but it looks for certain um, proteins on the on the virus, and that one um, is the rapid one. And then we have the antibody testing. We have those three, and uh, I think you'll see more, Gary, of the of the rapid one. But it's maybe not as um, if I were to get a test now, I would get the one in your nose. It's it's still it's still the most reliable one. All right, Texter says something. Uh... Uh, I've, I've seen recently, and it says, does it even pay to wear a mask if you wear it below your nose? See that quite often these days. Yeah. Um, what you're doing there is wearing a chin strap. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, you know, like a, like a Minnesota Viking football player. Um, it needs to be over your nose and your mouth. Um, I saw one guy, I saw a picture of a guy with his mask, and he was on an airplane. It was on his eyes. That, ain't, that isn't going to do anything either. Um, it needs to be over your mouth and your nose. And keep in mind that um, these things are to prevent you transmitting it to others. You can still get the virus if you're sitting by or, you know, you're with somebody who doesn't have one on. The mask is to protect others. And, yes, it does have to be over your nose and over your mouth. Do we know if uh, COVID-19 is not transmitted in water? Do we or do we not know that? What we know is um, we're um, we're quite confident it spread through the air, but even even there is some controversy um, on that. I'll get back to that in a second. We think it is probably not 
um, a, a, a route of transmission through the water. It's possible. You know, anything is theoretically possible. For instance, if you're in a, a place where there's COVID in the water and you got it in, you inhaled it into your nose and lungs, as you know, that could happen. Um, however, that seems to be exceptionally low risk. Chlorine in swimming pools would kill everything, including this. So it's probably not surviving in there anyway. But even if the virus were to be surviving in water, you're not essential, you're not inhaling water usually. It, you might swallow some, but you're not usually inhaling it. But it's possible. So I think water, very low risk. As for the air, we currently are pretty confident that it's spread at least by droplets, which means when people talk or cough or sneeze, um, the, the droplets that come out of your mouth generally are larger droplets that fall to the ground. That's why the six foot um, is that most of those droplets fall to the ground um, right within six feet of your body. So there's some science behind the six foot social distancing. There is some controversy, though, and it might be possible that they are not that it's not spread just by droplets, but it's also spread by the airborne technique, which means not droplets that fall to the ground, but rather very fine particles of virus and moisture in the air, more like a fog or a mist. Hmm. Particles that stay in the air for hours and hours and hours. That is maybe why indoor transmission is more risky, is that is that the the particles just float in the air for hours so others can breathe and breathe them in. So there's some controversy in whether it's just those big droplets or where it's also um, floating airborne particles. But the water one, I think the water transmission is probably very low risk. I wouldn't worry about going swimming. In fact, on these hot days, it's a good idea to go swimming. Good idea. Let's go back to the phones, Dr. Robert, I believe, is calling in from uh, Hackensack, I think. Robert, you're on uh, CCO with Dr. Hilden. Hello there. Uh, I have a question about uh, heat exhaustion and why it uh, causes permanent sensitivity to heat after uh, you've had that type of experience. Uh, and uh, I had a heat exhaustion when I was 18, and uh, since then, when it gets above 70, I've got to get inside, keep cool, and uh, it makes me, I'm very sensitive to heat now. What's actually happening physically that causes this? I'll hang up and listen. Hey, Robert from Hackensack, thanks so much for your call, and it's a timely one. I, my short answer is I don't know why it would cause, cause sensitivity to heat many years later. That I'm not so sure about, unless it has messed with your body's thermoregulatory system somehow. But it's possible that those things are unrelated, what happened when you were 18 versus what happens when you're older. I'm not sure about that connection. But what's going on with heat exhaustion is, is um, sort of a biochemical physics um, type of issue. Your body has, um, even if you're just sitting there, just sitting, your body is generating heat. As you can imagine, the human body is warm. Your heart beating is a pump, and anything that is, that is using energy gives off um, heat. And so your body has to get rid of that heat somehow or it will overheat, just like your car. And the body gets rid of that primarily through perspiration. 
and then the heat gets radiated away from your wet skin. It can also, it gets rid of your heat a little bit through your breathing. You breathe out a little bit. And then there's just convection. Your skin just radiates heat, but perspiration being the main mechanism. But think of what happens when you perspire. You are losing water. You're losing water um, because your body's trying to cool off. But as you lose water, you're, you get dehydrated and your heart has to beat even stronger because there's not enough blood to go around. So your heart beats stronger. And when it beats stronger, it generates more heat. Your body's metabolism is generating more and more heat. And, and you get in a vicious cycle. You perspire more, you lose water, you get hotter. And so your body um, just overheats. And so that's why it's so important to stay well hydrated, to get out of the heat, especially on these hot days like we have today, especially when it's humid outside because perspiration is less effective when it's humid. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't know the connection between what happened when you're 18 and now, but I do know that heat exhaustion and heat stroke are dangerous situations, particularly for older adults and for babies and children. So keep babies, children, and older adults well hydrated, stay in the shade, be in air conditioning if you can, lots of water. Um, and that's how you can avoid that kind of a thing. It's timely. This whole week has been just one big risk factor for heat exhaustion um, among well, among people here. Yeah, looks like it's going to continue uh, the rest of the week. As a matter of fact, I think uh, so. We'll go- stay hydrated. Stay out of yes. the sun. We're going to get back to the phone callers in a moment. I want to grab a text message uh, just before the we break here, and it's just an opinion. Uh, Texter says, "Why are Wisconsin COVID nineteen deaths nearly half of that in Minnesota? Do you think they're treating patients better there?" It's a good question, and and Wisconsin's comparable to Minnesota. It, it's, uh, um, but they are they have slightly fewer. Um, I don't know that it's half, but they have slightly fewer. Maybe it is. Um, the reason being, I think, is the way we report data. We report state by state. But look at the good folks up in Lake of the Woods County in Minnesota. I don't think they've had a case yet, and yet they're lumped in with Minnesota. And so you know, you look at the Milwaukee area, and it's a mess. And you look at other parts of Minnesota, you look at the Worthington, Minnesota area, Nobles County, right here, has as one in 13 people in Worthington County has COVID. One in 13. That's a dreadful rate. Um, and yet you look at a couple counties over in Minnesota, and there's almost no cases. So we lump people together in, in by state, when in reality, it's probably you have to look at hotspots little by little. So overall, the state of Wisconsin's got a little bit better going on than the state of Minnesota overall. But if you look at individual hotspots in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, it's comparable. That's a better way, I think, to look at it. So you think of like the worst state we got right now is the state of Arizona. It, their case rate is astronomically high. And, but it's not the entire state of Arizona. I'm sure there are parts of Arizona that are relatively mildly hit, and yet we talk about Arizona as a hotspot. It's mostly a reporting issue, I think, and that's why Minnesota and Wisconsin look a little different. Overall, they don't look that different. You know? Well, let's take a break. We have more show to come. It's an open-line show on Healthy Matters this morning. Your uh, general health questions for Dr. David Hilden, 78 degrees now, here on News Talk 830 WCCO. And good morning. Welcome back to Healthy Matters on this open line show Sunday morning. We have callers, Dr. Hilden. We have a bunch of texters as well. So let's see how many we can feel before you have to take your leave today. I believe Doug is uh, waiting in uh, Norwood to ask you a question. Doug, thank you for waiting. What is your question? Thanks for taking my call. 
I have a question on sarcoidosis. In 2018, I had a cardiac PET scan, and the term they used then was I had signs of sarcoidosis. And at that time, the specialist said they were not going to do anything to treat it at the time. Well, I'm having issues. I went in for a, pet, a cardiac PET scan uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, they said where I had the signs of sarcoidosis in 2018 is still shows signs, but I have another area that say is shows active sarcoidosis. But now the uh, what do you call them the Specialists, my uh, electro, electrical physiologist and my cardiologist can't agree that there is active sarcoidosis there. What do you consider should be the next step? That's a great question, Doug. Thank you for your call. So sarcoidosis, we're not sure what causes it, but it is a, a disease in which small inflammatory cells grow in little pockets in certain parts of your body, most commonly your lungs your lymph tissue, your lymph glands, and often in your skin, although it can be anywhere in the body. It really can be. Most people, um, it is an incidental finding like yours. You had some kind of other scan and you saw these little granulomas or little collections of inflammation in your body that don't amount to much. But others, it can amount to something. It can, it can lead to shortness of breath, skin problems, other organ dysfunction. So there are treatments for sarcoid, but no cure. Often it's immunosuppressive type of therapy, things like steroids that reduce the inflammation um, from these things. I would see a specialist for sure, not just a heart specialist, because most, although you can get cardiac sarcoid, sarcoidosis in your heart, um, it is a full body systemic problem. I would recommend you see a rheumatologist if you haven't yet. A rheumatologist I talked about earlier is a bone and connective tissue person, but they're also really good at autoimmune diseases. Um, if it were only in your lungs, I would see, say see a pulmonologist. Only in your skin, I would say see a dermatologist. But I often recommend a rheumatologist who has a, a whole body systemic look at it. And have that rheumatologist look at your scans, look at your, the state of your sarcoid and make some recommendations. You might need a number of specialists, but that's where I would begin, Doug. Um, many people don't need treatment. They really don't. You can have little flare-ups here and there, and it just never amounts to anything. But it certainly can. The other organ that is sometimes affected is the eyes. It can lead to vision loss. So I would see a rheumatologist to look at the whole part of your body and make recommendations from there. Texter wants to know, especially related to senior citizens, what are some of the symptoms of the COVID-19 virus that you should be aware of, especially the elderly, they say? Yeah, um, the main ones, the ones that are the most prominent are um, a fever, but not always, but most commonly a fever, a cough, you can have a cough, and shortness of breath. Those are the three big ones, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. However, most people don't have all of those, and many, many people don't have any of them. And so other symptoms that might be associated are a headache, a sore throat, general body aches and pains, or even a loss of, of your sense of smell or taste. Those are less common but possible. So, so what I recommend to people, especially older adults, if you have any new symptoms, go get tested. That's what I would suggest. Anything that of uh, trouble breathing, any fever, any sore throat, any just body aches or pains, go get tested. Another texter wants to know, 
uh, are all ICU patients, meaning the COVID patients, on ventilators? Are all of them on ventilators? No, but many, at least the ones with COVID. Um, generally, when you get to the ICU, it's because you're heading for a ventilator. In our hospital, we have patients on the regular medical floors that in past days would have been in the ICU, but because of a lack of ICU beds, we cared for them on the floor, on the regular hospital beds. But generally, you you get more short of breath and your oxygen levels drop, 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 drop. And so what we do is we have you on one of those little prongs in your nose at first, giving you oxygen. Then we put a face mask on you. Then we put an even higher flow oxygen device on your face. And then when we get beyond that, if your oxygen levels are still dropping, you go to an intensive care unit where you're usually put on a ventilator. And the idea is to support you while your body gets over this thing. Um, The problem in our ICUs is that people who are on ventilators are on them for a much longer than in other illnesses. 10 days, 15 days, 20. We've seen some 30 days, 40 days. That's ridiculous in terms of previous illnesses that you're on a ventilator that long. But that's what's happening with COVID. Not all are on ventilators, but in the ICU, patients with COVID mostly are there because they're on a ventilator. I know we have about uh, a minute or so to go here. Uh, And you had mentioned as far as the younger demographic are seeing more uh, cases of those, and the texter wants to know: Are you seeing those uh, those uh, that demographic in in your hospital? Yes, not so much the twenty and thirty year olds, but some. Uh, we are seeing a lot of forty and fifty year olds. Fortunately, they're the ones who are going home. They're there for kind of a long time, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, but they're going home and they're recovering. So so the younger people, the youngest ones, 20s and 30s, are generally mild illness, not in the hospitals. Lots of people in the hospitals in their 40s and 50s, but generally getting better. And sadly, it is older adults that are are more often um, the ones who are not surviving um, the illness. We have a fun thing in our hospital. We've installed a big bell. It looks like a church bell on the wall of one of the units where people have COVID. And every time somebody leaves, we ring that bell and everybody claps, lines the halls with their masks on, and we cheer everybody who leaves um, the hospital after getting better from COVID. Because you should know, more people are getting better than, than are dying. Most people still do recover, and that's a happy thing. All right, I know we have to head out of here, but uh, I want to alert our listeners, we're going to have uh, an interesting show coming up next week, right? We're going to talk about sleep next week. We're going to have uh, Mark Rosenblum, a sleep expert, talking about insomnia and ways that you can sleep better. I also want to alert people, go to myhealthymatters.org and read my doctor's diary from a pandemic, myhealthymatters.org. Excellent. Have a good week. Stay cool. Thanks very much, Dr. David Hill. And join us next week for another edition of Healthy Matters on CCO. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.